Hey everyone, welcome back to Authentic Avenue. My name's Adam Connor, and you're gonna love today's guest. Her name is Mita Malik. She's the head of inclusion, equity, and impact at Carta. She's the co-host of her own podcast, which is called Brown Table Talk, which I'll leave notes to everywhere you consume this. She's a member of LinkedIn's inaugural Creator Accelerator cohort, which is awesome. And today we talk about a bunch of stuff like telling a story of a brand and why people who do that aren't always the best personal storytellers, which I thought was interesting. We talk about bringing your full self to work. We talk about having a nothing to lose attitude and her special connection to that. And then we talk about things where I frankly need to learn a little bit more, be a better ally or just be educated. Things like social injustice and racism in the office that she specializes in talking about is a real thought leader there. We also talk a little bit about brands and belief-driven buying, so we do touch on the business side of things, but I think you'll like this extended conversation today just because of the social issues and impact that she talks about. She's a real star here. I have her on this show because my previous interview with LinkedIn and Callie Schweitzer from LinkedIn, uh, that was her first recommendation. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to have her on the show. Fantastic. So now I'm glad I get to have you enjoy that as well. So uh, this is Mita Malik. Hi, everybody. We are back. I've got a really interesting conversation. And you know why it's interesting to me? Because, frankly, I, I both don't know a ton about it and am not part of the audience that's been deeply affected by it. But I am part of the audience that needs to learn a lot more about it. I'm talking about that whole world of DEI, inclusion, equity, impact. I got somebody here that's the head of all of that for Carta. You probably know her. This is somebody who's been talked about on the podcast beforehand. If you all remember the episode with Callie Schweitzer on LinkedIn, I said, who's the first person I need to talk to next? And she said, meet a Malik. So meet a Malik. Welcome. Thank you for being here. How are you? Oh, thank you so much for having me. Callie's the kindest person for recommending me. I was jazzed to have her on as well because yeah. she knows so much more than me. And frankly, I was like, I was like, whew, she, she knows a lot more people than I do too. So I was like, wow, even get her in the room was like awesome. And then yeah. I was like, well, then I got to have your, your A list. Who do I talk to next? She was like, me to me to me. I said, okay. Oh, thank um, you. When we, we've, we chatted a little bit prior to this. And so that's how we know what we're talking about. You told me, you gave me a quote during that, which you probably say a lot. And you said, our stories are constantly being rewritten. It's true for me professionally, personally, I can think of a bunch of ways. Um, you've done a couple of things recently, which is rewriting your story. We're going to talk about Brown Table Talk in a second, which is yes. rewriting a chapter of it. What's the story look for you like right now? Well, the story looks for me right now. It's 18 months into the pandemic. I'm still in my bedroom. I switched into another big job, left Unilever, came to Carta. I have not met anyone at the company except for one person, which was a socially awkward distance coffee date on a, on a city bench. I... Um, so I would say one of the lucky ones who's employed as a working mother, I have a six and nine year old, and that's one of the most important jobs I have. And my story is being rewritten because I am finding different ways to storytell, which is starting a podcast, which is super exciting and super scary, as you know. Mm -hmm. Hey, I've been there. Uh, you, yes. You're going to get scared. I'm scared. I'm scared right now. No. <laughs> um, so, so, well, let me ask you this. Cause I, that it actually surprised me. Something you said, so you have only met one other person over there, but you've been there. Look, and I'm going to cheat a little bit. Viewers, I'm going to look at my other screen over here for like over a year. A year. Now, I would have assumed that most organizations make like, not publicly, but they'll little asterisk, oh, we'll get our leadership together. At least we'll all talk. So Carter's taking it super seriously. Is that Has that surprised you that like you act like even now, I mean, most people got to be vaxxed. I mean, well, what's the deal? 
for me, I've wanted to wait for my children to get vaccinated. So I've oh, been vaccinated, of but for me, my six and nine year old who they've gotten their first shots, I'm really excited. So I hope by mid December, January, we are returning to the office, but the company has right. been super supportive of meeting people where they are and making yeah. sure that we're keeping employees safe. And so I think there were three weeks in the summer before the surge of Delta, where it was the roaring twenties, where I was about to go back to the office mm -hmm. and then Delta surged. I was about to, sorry, not go back, go into the office for the sure, first day. Sure. So January for me will be like the first day of school. <laughs> I'm excited. Yes. I, I remember, I remember those roaring twenties is a good way to put it. Cause people yes. were just start actually people were taking their masks off. They're like, you know what? It might be over. Yes. Yes. Um, and viewers are recording this. this is going to come out in a little bit. We were recording this and I should have known we were recording this within like a week or two of that first shot for ages like five to 11 being that's, allowed. That's correct. So that makes complete sense. And I don't have kids. So that's why I was ignorant to that. But cool. Glad you're going to have your first day of school experience. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let me, let me start right there because the way that you've just described the story as it looks right now, you went immediately to the most important job of all being raising a family. You went to your personal story as opposed to diving headlong, which most folks I talk to do, into their organization. We could touch on it a little bit, but it seems clear to me, and I'll dive right in with this. I talk with chief marketing officers a lot, founders a lot, CEOs a little bit, um, but generally speaking, like people who should be the chief storyteller for their brand. The funny thing about that is that it's probably like half the time, I don't want to say the majority because it's not true, but like roughly half of people are really good at telling like the story of their business and they come like fully loaded into this interview, ready to go with those facts. And they're not really able to tell their own personal story that incredibly well. I, why? Do you have a thought on this? Because you, I, and we'll get more to your like personal stories and experiences through this and listeners, I'm sort of like baiting it here because I know that Mita has a good story and that she prioritizes it. Why don't leaders show their personal stories more? Is it a risk? Uh, is it fear? What, what, what's up with that? I think there are a lot of different reasons. I think that there's fear. You're scared. You might have parts of your story you haven't reconciled with yourself yet. You have parts of your story you haven't said out loud. You have parts of your story that are being rewritten. I think it's actually interesting in terms of, especially in the last 18 months and how the power dynamic and companies are shifting. I think that when I was growing up in corporate America, it was like the CEO, the C-suite, they were like gods. They weren't human, right? You just thought yeah. it was gods. They barely so, saw them. Yeah. And it's like this idea of like old power, new power shifting. Right. So this idea of old power is like, you're the CEO. I'm the CEO. I have all the answers to everything. I know what to do. Everyone's going to listen to me. And it's like the pyramid, right? So like I'm right here on top. And so maybe I have to feel like I have to put on a facade, yep. right? Of like and a curated image of myself. And so now I think what you've seen is my kids might run in, they're in school today, which is great. So they won't be, but you just don't know what sort of grief and pain has been going on behind people's screens. And sure. in a lot of ways we've actually been exposed to it. And yeah. so the stories can't be hidden anymore. They're right there out in the open. And so I think that's, what's also changing. Yeah. I've, I've, I've loved it personally because I began interviewing leaders like the fourth quarter of 18. So I got a good wow. five quarters of it, maybe six really before, like before everybody went home. Right. So in that time I saw the power of 
media training. So a lot of people who knew their points, they stayed buttoned up. Maybe they were that like godlike, whatever. They were they were at the pinnacle and they needed to maintain that image. Sometimes they were leading publicly traded companies. Lots more people were listening to this than just me and somebody caring about marketing. Sure. But then everything turned around and I those are the moments that I've loved the most, which I'm sure that hopefully these hopefully leaders are now understanding more. Like even moments that don't make it to the show, like listeners, we, we cut in and out sometimes when, when things happen, whether they knock on the door, a mailman or whatever, or like in the case of one, I was interviewing uh, this woman, Jessica, who at the time was heading marketing for uh, Open Table and a kayak at the same time and wow. is now the CMO at Indeed. Her name's Jessica Jensen. And we stopped halfway through because her daughter like ran in the door wanting to play horses. So we played horses for a second. Now that's not something that you would ever get on like an earnings call or anything. I knew you never would, but like those are the moments that I, and, and hopefully people are seeing a lot more. I think in part because of another thing that I heard from marketers, brand leaders, whatever, leaders like you the whole time, which were that you need to bring your, your full self. You need to show every part of yourself when you come into work. That's an important point though, because now we're a year and a half right into this thing where we, people are, they're hybrid. They're sometimes in the office. Sometimes everybody's returning slowly, but they're still at home. Bringing your full self to work has just been bringing your full self into the partition of your home where you're having meetings that day. Yes. People have become a lot more open with that. I mean, I, what was athleisure is now like work leisure attire, like even stuff like that. Now we're starting to trickle home. By home, I mean the office. What do you think people are going to do when they are brought back into that environment where historically they need to be, you know, buttoned up, shoulders back, walking through professional attitude where the last year and a half, it hasn't necessarily needed to be that way. How do they retain that authentic self? I hope we don't forget it. I hope we don't leave it behind on the screens. I think it's going to be like the great reunion in terms of people. Being the great re has been like a lot of, it follows a lot of words. Yes, <laughs> reunion. Recession, reshuffle, or whatever. Yeah, and just to continue to show up with kindness and empathy for each other. I think that's so important. And I think, you know, returning to the office, the great reunion is not going to be as easy as we pictured. Listen, I have a private office right now. I don't know what it's like going to be like my bedroom, what it's going to be like to be sitting next to a coworker. Now, remember, many organizations went through over the last five to 10 years, this open seating thing, right? So yeah. now we're going to go back to hoteling and sitting wherever taking Zoom calls, volume loud. You know, if my husband leaves the his lunch plate in the sink, I can yell and scream at him. I can't really do that with my coworkers. It's like, why is the common kitchen? Like all those sort of things. Try so, as you might. Try as I might. It won't right? land. Yeah. Won't land. So show up with kindness. I think it's going to be a real transition for many of us who have been working virtually to show up again. And yeah. what I hope is that people will remember, just like you said about, the individual you interviewed and her daughter and horses. And so if that was a coworker, gosh, what an amazing detail that you remember, that you remember that about her when you see her and ask her, oh, is she still into horses? What's going on at home? And that I think right. now is an, a door that we've opened that we can no longer go back and close. Good. I hope so. I hope so too, but we have to keep it all open. That's what we all, it's all our responsibilities to keep it all open and not to forget. That's right. I, I have um, not had the, pleasure for better or worse, of having that environment um, 
since I uh, began working remotely, which predated uh, all of this, I started that in middle of, <clears throat> excuse me, middle of 2018. So mm -hmm. I haven't, I, now my wife has seen it, but I, I have not. And I just, I think it's going to be really hard for people to break it, especially folks who are, and now people who are new to the workforce or, you know, a few years into the workforce may be like more flexible to it. But I, I just wonder, do you think that office environments are just, are going to have to bring like more to the table to like entice people to be their whole selves when they're back in? Because it almost feels like, it almost feels like people could drag their feet in. Like it's the first day of school in a bad way. You know, you mentioned it, like it could be a happy reunion, but it's also like, God, I'd much rather be in my bedroom, private office. Listen, I have a lot of social anxiety. I'll be honest. Yeah. I don't think people know that I'm five one. That's an interesting thing too, right? Like I'm. That's been the most. Did I join a company yeah. of tall people? I keep pretending right. that I'm six one, but I'm really five one and a half. <laughs> and so, I've never met anybody in person. Where am I going to sit? Well, I have friends for lunch. What should I be wearing? I'm in a tech company. I don't really want to show up with a hoodie. I love wearing dresses and sure. heels. You know, all those sort of things. But I Aren't think camera angles great. Yeah, <laughs> and chairs. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think what'll happen is we'll settle in. I think it will be overwhelming at first, but I think we'll go back to you know. I love, I love meeting people and I love socializing and I love doing work that way. I think we'll also have to give each other what I say time to have quiet and downtime and to recharge ourselves. I was the person who would leave my house at like 8 a.m. and some nights wouldn't be back till 10 if I was doing dinner and evenings and events. I also was the person who'd be like, hey, like there's a there's a break. Let's walk to Starbucks and continue chatting. Let's grab a coffee and walk back. And you know what? Now I just might want to walk to Starbucks alone. Like mm -hmm. I might want those times. I think I keep saying we need like human recharging stations. We need places in the office where you can just sit quietly alone and not have to talk to anyone because I think that is going to be the adjustment when we're back full-time live in person. Isn't it, isn't it strange what immediately comes to my mind just as you say that? I think it's, I think it's correct, by the way. How perhaps inadvertently prescient the nap pods of the mid-2000s Google yes. offices were. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Nowadays, you might need to throw in some of that. You might. Why are you over here to be away from you? You know, I want to take a minute to relax and recenter. And if I don't have a coffee shop nearby, it's got to be done around the corner, something like that. Yes. Um, but then, of course, in the moments when you you have to, you know what I almost said, they have to be on. But the, uh, what I really mean is, whatever. I, I, I still do think there's sort of an on-off component of like being around other folks and working in an office environment. It's just that's the way that I've operated for better or worse. Um, coming from a performance background where it makes those moments when you're on, like obviously incredibly important because you're still putting your best self out there. Um, and it's in those moments now where you, you have to, I would argue, stand out even more than you did uh, because being in person will be, it'll have that heightened uh, gravity, gravitas, at least for the next like year or two. It will be. And I think what you're getting at is the question of how you manage your energy. And so if I needed to manage my energy right now, I wouldn't do this because we're in the middle of the podcast. I could just shut <laughs> the screen. Or if I needed to manage my energy, I could shut my video off. There's all sorts yeah. of things and ways we've adjusted to in this way of working and we'll have to readjust in person. And, and yes, those moments do matter when you're presenting to your CEO or presenting to the board or leading a team meeting and doing it in person. Even now you can only see me waist up thinking about all the, the, the nonverbals. 
and projection of voice and all of those things that I think about will be different back when we're live. Right. Yeah, I agree. So let me switch gear for just a second. Sure. Um, just based on a couple other things that we talked about prior to this. One of these things I immediately gravitated to being uh, somebody who does my own media work. I mean, really, I, it's not just that I work at home and I've got all these employees over there or across the screen. It's just me. There's a solo venture. You're looking at the whole enchilada right here. From that, I carry an attitude professionally, at least, of having nothing to lose. Now, you've said that in the past, have an incredibly powerful inspiration for bringing that attitude forward all the time. And I think it's when people have their backs up against the wall, when they have nothing to lose, that they do their best work. Well, I want to hear your inspiration for having nothing to lose and why right now that gives people a really strong advantage, even if they're not using it for an advantage. It's, it's tied in with authenticity, but I want to know why those two things, the nothing to lose attitude and bringing your authentic self to work, are, n have never been more tied together. I think for me personally, we chatted about this. The nothing to lose comes from um, almost five years ago, February, Valentine's Day. My life changed forever. I lost my dad really suddenly. And so when you experience grief that way and you lose someone so suddenly, unexpectedly, you just ask yourself the question, what are you waiting for? Because life is really short. I could not wake up tomorrow. And so that really drives me from a things that have really impacted me personally. And I think back to the authenticity piece, I grew up in a time and place where it was not cool to be Indian. I was the funny looking dark skinned girl with a long, funny looking braid whose parents spoke funny English until it wasn't funny anymore. And I was bullied a lot, both verbally and physically growing up. And that has stayed with me. And I don't want anyone to ever experience that, that they don't feel like that they belong, that they're excluded. And to your point that I want to be in an environment, I want everyone to be in an environment where they feel like they can bring the best versions of themselves to work. Because when I feel like my company supports me, not only is my potential limitless, also the company's potential is limitless. It's like sure. the sky's the limit. And so that's what that's why those two things are connected. And that's what that's what really drives me. And I think everyone needs to tap into what is it that gets you out of bed other than a paycheck? Like, are you living a life that you that you want that's filled with purpose, however you define or measure that. I know purpose is a heavy word and that changes every day, but what is it that you, what's the impact you want to make in this world? I, I hear quite a bit that feeling that you're working for something or towards something bigger than yourself Absolutely. is yes. a large part of that fulfillment. And of course, having nothing, uh, feeling that, that like carpe diem all the time I could not wake up tomorrow. That's, that's, that's correct. I got, I got nothing to lose. There's no reason why I shouldn't dot, 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 because tomorrow may be gone. Now, how I hear something like that, I get inspired immediately. I think most people do, because if you, if you ring their bell like that, they, they zoom out and they put things into perspective. My instinct, because I'm rather impulsive as a, as a person, I think I have like that kind of personality at times, would be to go full steam into something, whatever that something is that I, I want. It could be a, a personal endeavor. It could be going into business for myself, whatever it is. Um, going back to what we just talked about, about managing that, that energy of being on and off. And, um, you, you've, you said that you've somebody with a little bit of anxiety. I've had, I've had a crazy amount of anxiety in my past. I've been treated for and all that. 
how do you balance that? Like, well, I got to have that nothing to lose attitude because it could all be gone tomorrow. But man, like I got, I got limited energy today. How do you, how, how do you marry those two things? Cause I, I wouldn't want it to unintentionally bring me like more stress. Cause I'm not me- matching like a potential that like I heard from this inspiring thing. You know what I'm trying to say? No, I get it. You want to manage being burnt out. No one's trying to, yeah. I'm not trying to say get burned out over your purpose and the impact sure. you want to make. But I would say it's like part of it's also like being grateful for all that you've achieved today. I think sometimes we're too busy chasing success. Like, what do you have today that you're grateful for? And what are the one or two things you want to do and working towards them every day? They're small wins and that that tie to big wins. I think sometimes we sort of skip the small wins to get to the big wins <laughs> or we don't. So that's that's part of it. I'll tell you, I thought about doing a podcast for two years with a friend, my friend D. And then finally, I was like, what am I waiting for? What am I waiting? So some of these things, I'm not saying they don't happen overnight. Right. But I'm just saying, like, think about what is it that's holding you back? And usually it's ourselves that are holding us back. It's not generally something. Yeah, some, sometimes it's related to money or support. But I think the biggest obstacle starts with us and thinking yep. about why we're holding ourselves back. I'm right there with you. Mind over matter. And if it took you two years, now we got, we're going to talk about this next. Okay. Two years you had it in your head. No, I love it because, you know, I, I, I got into podcasting, um, not, not in the business world. And frankly, for a weird reason, frankly, the only reason I got into it because I, I wanted to perform somewhere. I wanted to tell stories and because I was traveling a lot because I was in tech sales, I did a podcast because that was like one less thing. One less thing being like, I didn't have to sit in front of a fixed camera in one spot. I could fly around and be on a microphone. How hard is that? Turns out pretty hard. Um, but Cause it's just like the same, I'm still doing the same editing works. So I don't know. I yes. was being, I was, I was naive. Um, th- that said, it's been incredibly fruitful and you and D D Marshall, I'll, I'll link her in our, in our notes, everybody, you'll, you'll be able to get to all of this that I'm about to say very recently dropped your own podcast. Cool. Called Brown table talk. I want to learn more about what that is for our listeners. And I think this is where I'm probably going to take a backseat and let you drive this conversation a little bit because it touches on so many things that I, as I said at the top, need to learn more about because I haven't had these experiences, frankly, because I'm a white guy. That's wrong. There's systemic advantages that I've been given. You're talking about how to empower everyone. And you found that you're getting really rave reviews and feedback from all sorts of folks. But I don't want to. I don't want to load this too heavily. Why don't you tell me a little bit about it? You do the talking, and I'll shut up. <laughs> so I've known Dee since 2017. We're very close friends. She identifies as a black woman. I identify as a South Asian brown woman, and we have shared so many stories about the shit we've been through in our careers and in our lives. And that we finally said we talk about this all the time: audio messages, late night texts, phone calls, dinners. Let's share this with the world. And so we wanted to share experiences that we have been through. And this is not an indictment, meaning so-and-so did this to me. It is about sharing those experiences to help women of color, not just survive, but thrive at work. And also for allies to pull up and listen in and say, okay, like what, what can I do if I see this happening? Because my perspective has always been, I love to share stories about what I and others have been through. And then to say, what can we learn from it? And if someone had been there for me in that moment at work, what could they have done differently? And so one of the reasons we took a long time to do the podcast is I didn't 
have the energy to learn or understand how to actually create a podcast from the technical place, which I know you know really well. So Rich Cardona, a shout out of Rich Cardona Media is our podcast producer. And he gave us some wonderful advice before we even started. He's like, listen to other podcasts and, and find out what you like or don't like. And so we wanted that to be short. They're under 25 minutes. Season one has eight episodes. Um, episode seven just dropped this week. And they're, they're short. We tell stories and we leave five tips at the end, both for women of color and allies. And our hope is that we can impact as many people as possible, both as you said, as you wonderfully just acknowledged how you're on your journey as an ally, that we can help people understand and stories that normally aren't shared out in public. Like we're really, as we say, spilling some tea on some things that people don't talk about openly. Sure. What's been the most exciting? What's been the, I don't want to say exciting because in this case, it, it's probably provoking for for, for me or for the listener. So as sensitive as it may have been, what, what's been the, what's been the most, uh, I don't know what word to say, but what's been the most interesting thing for you to actually talk about that is that tea that felt refreshing to lay on the table, so to speak. God, there's so many things, but I think one of the things is getting recognition for your work and making sure your work doesn't get stolen. That's happened to me too often in my career. And there's a story, a story I share. I'll, I'll leave that for you all to listen to the episode, but that happens a lot. It happens a lot more than we think it does. And it, it's happened. Certainly I can only speak from my experience as a woman of color. And I think it happens to a lot of women as I've, as I've been, we've been hearing feedback on it. So, so what do you do? And as an ally, if you see that happening, do you let someone else take credit for my work or do you stand up and say, hey, actually, that was Mita's idea. And that's actually Mita's entire deck that you just lifted and now you're presenting as your own. Right. So those are some of the conversation conversations we're having. Yeah, I that I mean, look, I, I, I don't have to be in that particular position at that particular time to get upset about it right now. Right. Imagine you in the moment. I mean, that, yeah. and, and then to, and then to think it's so broad that you may feel that there's nothing you can even do about it. And, and I'll talk about that in just, just a second, because I, I do have a question about it sure. um, uh, since you're in a leadership position, and I'm frankly not. But you have launched this first season. You're in the midst of launching the first season. Again, viewers, I'll put stuff everywhere. So you can click on it and you can look at all of it. And you have received just as many plaudits, comments, feedback from allies or potential allies as yeah. you have from maybe the audience that you intended to initially target, right? It's called Brown Table Talk for a reason. My guess is that you are looking to empower women, people of color, but you got a lot of commentary. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, were you expecting to get that? So when Dee and I started the podcast and started recording some of the episodes, I would just naturally kind of ask her, well, Dee, what would, we, what would you do if you were an ally? Like what could an ally do in this moment? And so it just sort of started happening naturally because I don't, yes, the storytelling is important, but what we learn from it is even more important. And I shared with you earlier, I was really touched that one of my white um, man friends who used to be a colleague, we worked together, listened to a bunch of the episodes. He actually said he missed his stop getting to work because he was trying to binge. And then he sent me the, I gosh, the kindest note that hit me to the core that said, I had no idea that when we worked together, you were going through all of these things. And I really wish I had been there for you more. And I wrote back immediately, like you were there for me in so many ways. You are an ally for me. I just wasn't ready to share a lot of the things I've been through. And so that 
meant a lot. And like you said, I'm a marketer, so I knew my primary audience would be brown and black women. And I'll use brown women inclusively, women of color who wanted community in these stories and to understand what they could do to win at work. And then there's the secondary audience of white allies who are allies in, you know, aspiring allies, allies in action, allies in training, all reaching out to say, thank you so much, because no one ever openly shares these stories in the way you all are sharing. Like we, right. you know, someone said to me, I, an ally said to me, I feel like I have access to a seat at a table I normally wouldn't when I'm listening to these stories. Well, and hey, so that was pretty whole, powerful. Yeah. It makes me wonder almost like in the future state, these lessons that are being told are obviously listened to and, and taken for right now, but ultimately perhaps could lead to, and again, I'm not part of a big corporation right now, so I don't know, but programs and, and, and I don't know if it's like internal, like learning series or whatever about like how to be a good ally. I'm assuming they exist, but is that something that you're seeing? And is that something that, uh, there could be more of? I think so. I mean, listen, these stories are not easy to tell. They're painful to tell. Yeah. And some might even say embarrassing that these things happened to me and I never did anything or didn't have the courage or the voice then. And so sometimes I think when we talk about how to be a good ally and allyship, the recommendations and the tips and things we give are great, but they're very vague. Sure. And stories move people. We know this, this is Marketing 101. Stories move people, stories stay with people, stories inspire people to take action. So the more stories we can share, you know, the friend who texted me, he's an ally anyway, but I know he's going to be thinking about it differently now at work with some of the things he's heard me share. Right. I got a couple more questions on, on uh, broadly for you, but I'll, I'll stick with one personally, and then I'll go sure. to how brands behave. And then I'll talk about this grand A word that I love to I love to tie myself to. So the first thing is that not directly related to this concurrent, much longer lasting pandemic, which is racism and discrimination in the office, is this rising movement of, of anti-work, which isn't really, um, it's not really anti-work. It's more people just like fighting for what is, is right, fighting for better treatment, things like that. Um, within that, I have seen either comments or, or, or anecdotes or stories, which have led to this like weird offshoot message, which is when things like this happen, you need to tell your stories in ways, and this is why I'm asking your perspective as a leader, which don't involve parts of an organization like HR because they are there to protect a company and you're more likely to get shunned or phased out rather than helped. Is that something that you're seeing on the ground Listen, I think broadly, HR gets a bad rap, right? There are, in my career, I've met a lot of not so great HR people and a lot of great HR people. And I think whether you call it human, human resources or the people function, it is becoming more and more important and at the core of any company, especially what we've seen, whether it's the pandemic of racism, COVID-19, the way we're working, the people function is front and center. And so the employees make up the company. So if we help create an inclusive culture that protects the employees, it'll help protect the company. I do want to actually build off your question about storytelling, because I think this is important. So Dee and I have decided that we want to share our stories. We've chosen that. What we also have to be careful about as allies is the cost of going to a primary source 
to constantly get access to a story. So for instance, if we're talking about the rise of xenophobia and hate crimes against the Asian community, as an ally, you have to have a trusted and safe relationship. You also have to be careful not to go to, let's say me, that one Asian person you might know and mm. not know well and say, what do you think about that woman who was like walking to church, the Asian woman in New York City in broad daylight and was attacked brutally? That is like, that's really painful. And that's not something I might want to talk about. And I also might not want to talk about my connection to what's happening right now because it's sure. so painful for me. And so I always joke and say, you can Google what it means to be anti-racist. You don't have to run up to people and ask them, right? You right. can do the work on your own. So I think that as human beings, storytelling is one of the oldest forms of tradition of communicating, but just ask yourself at what expense. You don't always have to go to a primary source. And so, you know, just be careful about that. I don't, it's not the job of individuals from historically marginalized groups to constantly be sharing those stories right. is the other piece. Totally. And I, I mean, that's, I don't have to know the exact full broad definition of the word ally to understand that, well, if you are going to be an ally, you will do things in partnership. You will, you will tell stories that you don't necessarily need to, I don't, I don't need to ping you every single time something else happens to get a qualified thought on it. I can be qualified yes. in, my, in, you know, is that what you're trying to say basically? Well, that is what I'm trying to say, but I also would say many organizations and organizations are flawed because they're made of human beings who are flawed, but we have a national tragedy. We have another unarmed black man who is shot and killed. And then all of a sudden the CEO or the leadership team says, let's get all the black and brown people into the room and ask them how they're feeling. Why? Let's ask the allies how they're feeling. How are we going to show up for our Black employees in that moment? And so that's right. where I think we have to be careful about putting pain on display, right? And and asking people permission, like, and asking people, like, do you feel comfortable talking about this? Do you want to talk about this? And if you don't, like, actually, you know what? As an ally, maybe it's my job to help start this conversation. So that's what I, I think there's a balance. You just have to ask people. Um, sure. Don't assume. Ask people what they're comfortable sharing. I, I think that is... It's a, it's a really poignant way to put it. Don't put paint on display. Got it. Okay. Yes. Let's pan, let's let's get everybody in a room. Anybody who will show up and ask, what can we do? Not yes. cherry pick or you know whatever. Absolutely. Um, okay. So, I mean, and hopefully people are following your lead here, your teachings, and, and doing it that way. More broadly speaking. Yes. Consumers, people who are voting with their wallets every single day have started, I, I think, over the last year, and yeah, sure, COVID accelerated it, but hopefully this was just a, a trend that was happening already. And especially now, with regard to this, as I said, concurrent pandemic of racism, consumers seem to be turning a corner where they are finally, genuinely taking the principles of a corporation and putting it over a price point of a product when buying something. I've heard it been called belief-driven buying. I've heard it been called a number of things. Where do you think we are in that evolution and do you, how do you believe it will continue to change the way that brands behave when tragedies like this happen? I want to make sure, of course, that brands don't posture. I mean, that's like, that gets closer to what my focus is. Like, are you really, do you really care? Are you saying that to protect your bottom line? How will this belief-driven buying, in your opinion, continue to change the way these brands behave and will it be genuine? I think it's here to stay. I'm sure one of the many pieces of research you've seen is from Edelman, their trust barometer survey. The, the, the rise in belief-driven buying is not Gen Z, Gen Y. It's across Gen X, whatever. It is across generation. And so 
I think, again, with the diversity tipping point of last year, the market has moved. And to your point, there's a lot of diversity washing out there. So checking the boxes when you actually lift up the hood, it's like, okay, I recently published a piece in Adweek, which I'll, I'll share with you to share with our listeners. But we talk about, in it, I talk about the three pitfalls of brands. I'll give you one and you can read the rest, but diversity dressing, what does that mean? I am on Instagram, I'm scrolling and I see a beautiful image of a dark skinned woman washing her face. Mm -hmm. And it's from a beauty brand I won't name. And then I go and research, they've got no products that work for her skin tone, no foundations, no eyeshadows. So you're like, what? So that is diversity dressing. So this, this putting up this facade or image that you actually are supporting the cause uh, without actually making sure all the details. There was a, there was a, I don't think it was called put up or shut up, but it was close. Pull up or shut up? Pull up or shut up. Yep. In the beauty. Cool. Okay, great. I knew I was, I knew I was, uh, because that happened. That wasn't just an illustrative example that happened in real life. Somebody went and ended up calling out a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And it was a big movement and it's still still happening because they're actually now, as they would say, checking receipts from a year ago to see, you know, not just as we would say, it is about the workforce data, but it's also how do your brands and products show up in the marketplace? To your point, you can say you stand for values, but when are you willing to stand up for them and how are you going to show up? Right. Right. I think that kind of stuff's fascinating and, and yes, reflective of the broader progression of consumers towards genuine belief driven buying and hopefully genuine brand positioning instead of just projection towards actually making progress yeah. in these issues, as you said, um, on all of these fronts. Yeah. And I would also included. say to your point, there's a big piece of allyship in that. I don't identify with the LGBTQ plus community. I identify as an ally. So when a brand stands up for that community, I'm more likely to buy from that brand. So it's very interesting. It's not just about how you identify, in my case, as a South Asian brown woman wanting to support more founders from that community, but also I'm an ally. I try to be, I'm on a journey to be an ally. So I'm, I'm very interested in brands who are showing up for other communities as well. I, I agree. I, I, and like, for for me, for somebody who has like spoken to these leaders on both sides of COVID, I do have this like natural born skepticism that I'm trying to slough because I still see it. Like I will still see whatever an Instagram ad, a TV ad, you know, I go back to like, you know, years and years, like years and years ago, probably five years ago where brands would spend like 5 million bucks to say like we donated a hundred grand to this cause. You know what I mean? Like there, I am working on it too, not just to, be an ally for groups that need it, but, um, to maybe, I guess, like trust brands a little more than they are actually doing it right. And they have to earn our trust. And I think the demographics have changed too quickly in this country. According to the most recent Nielsen study, it's $3.1 billion of spending power from the multicultural consumer. And so that can't be ignored anymore. And so that, that spending power is growing. And so that's where I also see when you ask like the skepticism of where it, will it turn back? I think it's hard when the market has shifted also in terms of the dollars. Yep. You can't argue with that. Um, nor will I argue with this next question for me because we've talked about uh, all of these different pieces that add up to this grand, this grand A word. And so I, I, I have begun asking everybody and this next question, and it's hard to do even for me. 
But if you had your own personal dictionary and you opened up to the A section and you saw the word authenticity, what would the definition next to that word read? Be unapologetically me. That's my journey. I am just going to show up as myself from now on. Not as somebody else, not as what other people expect me to be, and no more hiding. No more hiding things that have happened or things that I haven't wanted to talk about. So that's 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 what I'm now. Do I do that every day? <laughs> not always. No, it's that's more what I strive story. for, but yeah, but that's what I try. That's how I'm going to continue to show up, and that's when I want to role model for my children and all of our children. As you've said, if you can take one or two things and look at them, and we talked about that from a nothing to lose attitude point of view, but it can be on a journey to being unapologetically you. Maybe I'll round out then with a quick ask for advice for those who are trying to follow your lead in that way, and maybe follow your lead towards becoming a leader on these issues, a corporation or otherwise. What advice would you give to them as to how to get started on that path to find maybe their person, either their personal truth or their brand's truth with regard to these things? How do they pave their own authentic avenue is what I'm really trying to ask per the name of the show, but could you help me with that as we close out? A few things. Start by uh, sharing a letter to your younger self, right? If you could write a letter to your younger self and sort of your story and what you've been through that only you can read, no, you, don't have to, you don't have to share it with anyone yet. I think that's one, that's one way to do it. And I think the next step would be share something about yourself that you haven't shared with anyone else yet. Um, and I think you'll be surprised about the feedback you get. And I think the more we share, there's power in that. Because I think the things that at least I've been in through through in my career, when I share that story, I get my voice back and I heal myself a little bit. And I also help other heals and empower heal help others heal and empower myself and others to use their voice. Hmm. Well, I I have taken away a number of things from this that I'm gonna try to um, like I said, I'm an impulsive thing person, so I don't wanna put them all into action, but for, for example, writing a letter to my younger self, never heard of that before. I, I'm stealing that on like, that was not me. I don't know who it was, but if you're listening, please give yourself credit. That's, that was something that I saw starting, started to happen on LinkedIn. People. Yeah, were, that's cool. So yeah, that's actually not a bad idea. Yeah. And viewers, listeners, you know, wherever you are, I, I hope that this conversation inspires you to do two things. The first is take it upon yourself to learn more about this world and how to be a better ally by listening to Brown Table Talk. It's a good place to start. If you don't know where to go, you might as well learn from two people who are telling their story where other people maybe aren't. Um, and secondly, take those final pieces of advice to heart. What can you share that you haven't done before? What would you write to your younger self? Those are important things that I'm at least going to think about today and then, until this goes up and then maybe far beyond that. For doing that, inspiring that for me today, Mita, thank you very much for joining us, for joining us on the avenue. And, uh, and we'll talk again soon. I, but I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Great conversation. Mita is such an outspoken voice about this. And I encourage you to not just listen to this, not just listen to Brown Table Talk. I encourage you to do both of those things, one of which you've already done. But look at where else Mita is producing content. She she writes in all sorts of business journals. She creates on LinkedIn. I'll throw links to everything I can find in the notes of whatever app you're viewing this on. And I hope you check her out because it's an important conversation, whether you're directly impacted by it or not. It's good to learn. 
As far as this show goes, uh, I'll see you again real soon. I'll have another fantastic leader on to talk about that grand A word and how they define it, how they manifest it. In the meanwhile, you can stay subscribed and listening to this either uh, on YouTube or podcast apps or on my website, authenticavenuemedia.com. You can follow me on LinkedIn. I'll put links everywhere as well for that. Um, and how many times can I say I'll see you later? Well, I'll do it one more time and I'll sign off with this. Until the next time I get real again with you, thanks for taking a walk with me down Authentic Avenue. And we'll see you later.